1: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The last time we had entrepreneur, professor, and author Luke Burgess on the show, he discussed the concept of mimetic desire, which says that we want the things we want because other people want them. Since that time, Luke has continued to explore this idea of mimesis and how to resist its negative consequences in his Substack Anti-Mimetic. Today on the show, Luke and I dig into these ideas and discuss ways we can step outside the tempo, cadences, and priorities that the world would foist upon us and establish our own rhythms for our lives. Luke unpacks what it means to have thick desires and become a political atheist, and how these concepts can help you live a more anti mimetic life. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awmis slash Luke Burgess, welcome back to the show. Hey, Brett. Good to be back. So we had you on the podcast a few years ago to talk about your book Wanting, which introduces readers to a theory of why we want the things we want. And this theory is called mimetic desire. And the reason I wanted to bring you back on the show is because since you've published your book, you've gone on to explore different ideas that seem to they're like they're offshoots of you grappling with this idea of mimetic desire. So I think before we start our conversation today, so we can explore these offshoots, I think it'd be helpful for people who aren't familiar with mimetic desire. And I'd encourage people to go listen to our our podcast that we did on that. I'll put the link to the show notes. But just for the listeners who aren't familiar, can you give us a, a brief thumbnail sketch of what
0: mimetic desire is? Sure. Well, the thinker that really inspired my book and is responsible for coining that phrase, mimetic desire, is Rene Girard, a French thinker. And he said, man is the creature who doesn't know what to want. So he looks to other people to help him decide. And, you know, when you really wrap your mind around that statement. It's pretty mind-blowing, right? We don't know what we want. And we assume, usually, we take our desires for granted and assume that we know. But Girard is saying that in fact, we're social creatures and we rely on other people to help us know what it is that we should want. And he calls these other people models of desire who are constantly mediating desires to us, usually without us even knowing it. So this phrase, mimetic desire, just means imitative desire. We're imitative creatures. Mimetic is a word that comes from the Greek word that simply means to imitate. So mimetic desire means that we are assimilating, almost by contagion, the desires of other people around us. Now, we normally think of imitation as being something that's limited to relatively surface level things. We know that we learn language by imitation, mannerisms, things like that, right? cultural things. Gerard's insight was that our powers of imitation go way deeper than skin deep. Right? They go down to the level of desire. So somebody near us, somebody who's important to us, who deeply desires something is pretty much inevitably going to influence us at the level of desire, not just intellectually, but there's something much deeper here. So you know, if I have an older brother who really wants a career in the military, his desire, whether I pursue that path or not, is going to affect me and shape the way that I think about my myself, my own identity, and what it is that I should want. And this happens all of the time. And it happens from a very, very young age. And a quintessential example would be turning a bunch of toddlers loose in a room full of toys, you know, more than enough toys for all of them. One of them, you know, little girl picks up a fancy red fire truck for whatever reason, you know, maybe her dad's a firefighter or something. She's fascinated with it. And it doesn't take long for another child to come over and be fascinated with that toy because she is, right? Because she desires that one. It sort of imbues it with this almost like mystical value. And then once there's two of them, well, it's even more powerful. So it's all the easier for the third and the fourth and the fifth kid to come over. And before you know it, they're fighting over the same toy. And there's like a hundred toys in the room, right? So this gets at what mimetic desire is. You know, we we choose sometimes what to pay attention to based on what other people are paying attention to and what they want. And Gerard's insight is that mimetic desire actually leads to conflict and rivalry, like we see with the toddlers. You know, all of a sudden they're fighting over the same truck, and there's a hundred toys in the room. And he says, this is kind of the way that human beings are, right? Mimesis attracts us to each other and eventually leads to rivalry. And, you know, we see that in the first pages of the Bible with Cain and Abel, right? <laughs> you know, they 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 want the same thing. They want to be recognized for a sacrifice that they make. It's actually them— wanting the same thing. That's the cause of their conflict, not their differences. And that's a really counterintuitive point that Gerard makes. And he sees this power of mimesis and mimetic desire at the very root of culture and what it means to be human.
1: And one of the issues with mimetic desire, once you think about it, is it explains why you sometimes want things that you don't particularly like, right? Like you you want this thing, and then once you pursue it and get it, you're like, boy, I really don't like this. This is actually not that great, and it doesn't satisfy you. It doesn't feel doesn't feel good. That's one of the downsides. I mean, mimetic desire could be good. Like, you know, there's people who could influence you for the good, help you. You see someone pursue the good in their life. And you see that, and you're like, oh, well, I want that too, and it kind of it can be a, a good thing. But oftentimes, we see things, especially on social media, where we're like, well, this guy's doing this, and it seems like it's you know making him have a great life. And then you pursue it, and you're like, man, this really sucks. I don't
0: actually like this. A 100%. And I mean, I, I was walking down the street in New York City just a couple of months ago, and I was hit with this case of positive mimetic desire on my phone, probably tweeting or something like that, kind of head in the clouds, thinking about all the things that I have to do, affected by negative mimesis, really, right? Like seeing people commenting on the news cycle and kind of caught up in it. And walking down the street and I saw somebody walk out of a store and bend down and attend to a homeless person on the street and actually bring them out a lunch and ask them how they like their coffee. Okay? And I, I witnessed this happen and it immediately drew me out of myself. And I was like, well, I, I want what that person wants. Right. I, w- I want to be like positively affected by that level of concern because I feel very just preoccupied and somewhat selfish right now with these things and it was you know these things happen all the time they draw us out of ourselves in positive ways too so it's re- you make a really important point that mimetic desire just is right it's just kind of what it means to be human and it's why the the models that we allow ourselves to be affected by the people that we surround ourselves by are really important because mimetic desire can go in negative rivalrous ways that can make us pretty miserable you know pursuing careers that really, we really don't care about, right, to keep up with somebody else or something like that. But they can also be tremendously positive and we can be inspired by people in their lives that want things that we want to want, but might not currently want, if that makes sense.
1: That makes sense. So you have a newsletter called Antimimetic that I subscribe to and I've really enjoyed. And it's where you explore how people can maybe mitigate the downsides of mimetic desire and get some of those good things that sort of the positive aspect of mimetic desire in their lives. And one way you propose people can do this is by cultivating what you called thick desires. So walk us through, what's the difference between a thick desire and a
0: thin desire? You could think of a thin desire as this fleeting, temporary, ephemeral, relatively superficial kind of desire that is here today and gone tomorrow, you know, like something that I want really strongly today, you know, some new thing that I see in the store. And by next week, I will have totally forgot about it, right? Like that's the sign of a thin desire. There's nothing real and solid there. There's no continuity to that desire whatsoever. A thick desire, on the other hand, I think more of like layers of rock. If you've ever been to a beautiful national park like Zion in Utah or something, you know, I'm always amazed when I look at the rock formations. You know, I see how these things have been built up over millions of years. And I think in a life, you know, it's kind of you think of thick desires as forming in a way that there's continuity to them, right? They're solid and we don't have to worry about them, you know, disappearing with the slightest gust of wind. And by slightest gust of wind, I mean a new mimetic model enters the scene that we become caught up with and we sort of forget, you know, we forget our desires. And the memory plays an important role here, you know, like I think we're all born with a thick desire to move our bodies, for instance, right? I mean, it's kind of like our bodies are designed to move, right? It's joyful when you're moving the way that you're designed to move. And how many people get caught up with the thin desires hunched over their computer, checking their emails, for 12 hours a day and they start to have back problems and you know if this continues it starts a really negative cycle of desire where before they know it they don't even desire to move they don't want to run maybe they did five years ago but it's like the thin desires have completely taken over and dominated to the point where we start to want different things So just understanding um, the difference between thin desires and thick desires, you begin to have some pattern recognition and you know, well, you know, Luke, maybe you just sort of want to buy a van and drive around the country because you've been, you know, looking at Instagram a lot and seeing these like van life people, and it looks really sexy from the outside. But is that really what you want to do? You know? And my wife will laugh at me, and you know, I I can recognize it as a relatively thin desire, right? And just knowing where these influences come from, we just most of us live our lives taking all of our desires for granted, and we just assume that they're all thick, and they're they're not. Well, yeah, I think when you were
1: talking about thick
0: desire, thin desire, one that came to mind
1: is socializing with people in person, like having a, a really great conversation uh, with your friends where it just the conversation just goes different places and you just feel great after it happens. But oftentimes, I think we substitute that thick desire for the thin desire of just, okay, just, we'll do a quick text. I'll interact via social media with the like button. That's a thin desire. and doesn't, doesn't sustain you as much. But that thick desire, the problem with thick desires and thin desires is that thick desires are hard to cultivate. Thin desires are easy. Usually, if it's a thin desire, it's easy to do and to satisfy. But a thick desire, that takes work. It takes work to get people in person. It takes work to plan an in-person event. So you're just like, well, I don't want to do that. But whenever I'm in that position where I'm thinking, well, maybe we should get together with people and like plan the dinner. I'm like, oh man, no, it's just a lot of work. And I, I don't want to do that. And then my wife has to remind me, like, well, you always, whenever we do these things, you always feel like that was a great time. I'm glad we did that. So yeah, it's, I think that's another
0: example of a thick desire. I think thick desires need to be cultivated and they're always more work, 100%. And it's one of my thick desires. One of the things I like to do the most is to cook and be a host. You know, hospitality is really important for me. It brings me a lot of joy. It always has. And there's a difference between things that are meant to be supplements that become substitutes. So social media is a supplement. And it can be useful for keeping up with my friends that live in different parts of the world, different parts of the country. So that's okay. But when it becomes a substitute for the real, then it's basically an instance of thin desires completely subsuming and taking over the thick desires.
1: Yeah. Another, I guess, an example of thick desires in my life. I really enjoy reading a good long form article online, or it could be in a magazine or newspaper. But the thin desire is, just going through a tweet thread. Mm. It's easy, but it's not as satisfying. I never, I never, I don't think about those tweet threads that I read the next day, but I've, there's articles that
0: I've read that I still think about. I, I'm the same way, man. And, and, you know, people tell me all the time, like, hey, You know, you really need to write shorter form, like, you know, basically think in real short form thinking 10 to 30 seconds. And I I don't find that much satisfaction in writing those things, but there's this tremendous pressure to do that. And I have thick desires to make it through, you know, really challenging novels, right? I've always liked to do that, and I've actually found it's becoming harder and harder for me to do that. So it's a reminder for me, just because there's so many distractions. It's a reminder for me that, yes, Luke, that is a thick desire that you have to be able to make it through a book as challenging as Brothers Karamazov. But sometimes my thin desires pull me in so many directions and barely make it 10 pages without feeling a tug to go, you know, check my Twitter thread or something like that. And you mentioned, I think, in a Substack, article
1: that you have this hunch that a lot of people, they have a craving for these thick desires, the, the good, the beautiful, like great music, classical music, reading a really challenging but satisfying novel. But I think a lot of times people just don't know how to get started with that. Or it's just, it, it's so much work that they just don't even start. So like, what's your advice? How do you start cultivating these thick desires in a world that is awash in making thin desires easy to satisfy? Yeah. What have you found that's useful?
0: Yeah, you know, and thin desires are are very profitable, right, when people satisfy them. So there's a misalignment of incentives. You know, I, I, it's true. I I do believe that everybody has these thick desires inside, and they just need to be woken up. They need to be activated. It's why I like my job as a teacher. I'm a professor in a, for, in a college. It's one of the hats that I wear. And I love activating the thick desires of my students. They just almost need to be reminded. Right? It's just kind of uh, it goes back to something that Plato said, right? All learning is kind of memory. We just need to be reminded of our thick desires sometimes. I don't think there's any substitute for the real, I think. You know, good technology and good education always points people to the real. So, you know, spending 10,000 hours doing something offline, right, really sinking deeply into it, cultivating relationships with friends and family, all of these things that are real, I think it's very difficult to do it online because the very nature of our online world right now, especially social media, is just dominated by Thin Desires. And we need each other to awaken these thick desires in in one another. Because desire is social, you know, it's important that I have friends that can kind of, you know, remind me, hey, Luke, man, like we used to love to golf or we used to like to spend time together, you know, doing these things or fishing. I live on a lake during the summers, right? And it's like. We haven't been to the beach in two weeks. What the hell are we doing here? Like, we live five minutes away, right? And it's like, I need those people to help awaken those things inside of me and remind me to try to do it alone is really folly. And I think, you know, we live in this very individualistic world. People are lonely. And I just found it to be tremendous value to cultivate a network of good friends and good people that are all pursuing the real and trying at least, right, to activate and live out these thick desires because it's far more fulfilling.
1: Okay, so find a community. So maybe start a book club where you're going to read the great books with some mm-hmm. friends.
0: And, you know, you might have some problems
1: with that. Uh, it could be hard finding people who want to read, you know, Plato's dialogues. There's not too many people who just like, yeah, that sounds like something I'd like to do for fun, but it's worth the effort to find those people because it'll help you Because you're creating that positive mimesis in your life.
0: The fact that it is hard, you know, could be a sign that it's not a thin desire and that it's, you know, it's something that we should look seriously at. So it's not that everything that's difficult is necessarily better. But in the world that we live in, dominated by thin desires, most of the things that are going to lead to fulfillment uh, right now do involve swimming against the current a little bit. You know, it's one of the definitions of anti-mimetic. You know, dead fish float downstream, right? Live fish are able to swim against the current or even to swim upstream.
1: Um, and I, yeah, so if something feels hard, then it's probably anti-mimetic, uh, with a thick desire. And then another thing, if it seems useless, that might be another sign that it's a thick desire. I think C.S. Lewis said the, the useless things are the most valuable things. And that's counter to our very materialistic utilitarian world where well, I'm only going to do this thing if it provides some sort of you know productivity gain in my life. And Aristotle and CS Lewis would be like, well actually that's probably not the most valuable thing. If it feels not useful, then it's probably leading you towards the good, the true, the beautiful.
0: yeah and, and you know the word that Aristotle would use is contemplation right The contemplation is uh, one of the highest goods of life. And you know, one of my favorite books is by a guy named Joseph Pieper. It's called Leisure is the Basis of Culture. And it's just a reminder that some of the best things in life, especially today, involve feeling like you're not being useful. Just think of uh, spending time with a loved one holding their hand. My, my dad has dementia. I spend a lot of time with him. And, you know, sometimes we sit there where I'm listening for an hour to the guy that comes in once a month and plays Elvis and the Beach Boys on this little amp in the dining room. And I just do that for an hour. And, you know, I'm busy. I have a lot of demands in my time. But I know that I am cultivating a thick desire to be with my father. It ends up being the most satisfying part of my entire month. And I feel guilty because I actually still have those thoughts of like, what am I doing here? Do I really need to be here for the whole hour? Am I wasting my time? No, that's human. That's normal to think that. But I've come to see that as me investing in a thick desire. Something you've also written about is curating your media
1: consumption so that it cultivates those thick desires. So what are some ideas that people can find to fill their book list, their to-watch movie list, their podcast, their music list with things that cultivate thick desire and are anti
0: mimetic First, you know, we really have to step back and think about what we value and what our hierarchy of value is, right? What's really a priority for us? And then align our media consumption around that it's not that much different than food, right? We're consuming these things and we commune in a sense, in like a deep sense with the content that we take in. So, you know, if somebody told me, you know, they want to be healthy and they want to eat fast food every day, well, there's some kind of a misalignment there. But we're talking about thick desires. Like, let's take the example of patience. If patience is a value for you in your relationships or in your marriage, and you say that's a goal, well, It's really hard to be patient when all you do is consume 10 to 30 second YouTube video clips or TikToks all day. So, you know, if you're saying that that's the goal, you've got to be able to make it through a long novel. You've got to be able to sit still for an hour, however you want to do that. You could be in nature. You could look at a tree. You could meditate. You could pray. So the way that we consume things and spend our time has simply got to be aligned with those values. I think there's tremendous value in removing ourselves from the algorithm I try my best. It's not easy. I'm pretty online. But I can tell when I'm being caught up in in the algorithm. And I still find tremendous joy in walking in a used bookstore and the spontaneity of stumbling on a book that just happens to catch my eye. There's nothing algorithmic about that. There's something deeply incarnational about that. There's something real that I just place more value on that, right? It's not something that has been tailored to me by some company that's designed to make me follow a certain track so i mean one of the things quite simply is looking at older material that is not really subject to you know the trends that's not fashionable so one of my friends just watches like old classic movies that are really good but that nobody ever talks about anymore he actually publishes a newsletter on this so i follow that one because i find it to be and like i get really anti-mimetic recommendations and 9 times out of 10 you know these things turn out to be way better than you know the latest Movies that are top 10 on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. And the same thing with book recommendations. One of my favorite bookstores in D.C., you fill out a form, you tell them something about yourself, and the staff literally makes you a mystery box of 10 books based on what you've said. And I love that. Right? It's just there's this is totally like outside of the algorithm. So I, I tend to just look for little opportunities like that. It's not that I never find things online but I'm really, really intentional about the sources of my recommendations. All right, so look
1: for things outside of the, the algorithm or look outside of the internet. That's something my wife and I have done over the years with The Art of Manliness. You know, we've done some content ideas based off of things that we found in an old book that we found in an antique store in some town in Vermont. We saw this etiquette book from the 1800s, Pull that out. Man, there's like a cool article here. Or another one is um, buying old men's magazines from the 19. 19- 40s and 50s. And it's interesting to see it's fun to see what people were talking about like what it meant to be a man in the 40s and 50s. Occasionally there's something like that's actually really good. It was written in 1945 but it's still relevant today. It still it still resonates and so we you know might write an article based off of that. So I think that's another that's a really great way to cultivate an anti-mimetic media consumption. Use bookstores, antique stores. If you have a college nearby, go to the archival stacks. And just walk through it and pull off a book that just catches your attention and thumb through it. And you'll probably find something that you otherwise wouldn't have
0: found uh, that could cultivate that thick desire. Absolutely. And even little things like whenever I can, I take phone calls while I'm on a a walk outside rather than... You know, both of us huddled in front of our laptops looking at the screen. And, you know, there's even something about that that's anti-mimetic because, you know, the movement while we're talking, the things that we see, all of these things kind of spur things. So we're, you know, any amount of time that I can spend, I just try to structure my day where I'm exposed to more of the real. This actually, this idea of
1: taking control, as you're kind of taking control of your desire, like your mimesis in your life. And it actually reminds me, I've been reading Kierkegaard's Postscripts, which is this long book he wrote and it's like Kierkegaard's is hard to read he's a weird guy but he has this idea that he pulls out that you need to become subjective and what Kierkegaard meant by subjective was you need to become an individual that doesn't just let life happen to you it's about taking control of all the weird stuff that's going on in your life and fashioning yourself into an individual that you know in his case could stand before god and that requires you to
0: guide your desires so that you desire the good. I love that idea. I love Kierkegaard and, and that idea of the subjective it makes me think of agency. And I, I have this theory that in our world, people are feeling a loss of personal agency, whether it's, you know, AI, the algorithms, you know, like I, I see this especially in my students. They just seem to lack a sense that they have agency. And Kierkegaard seems to be saying the opposite. Like, well, we need to realize that we actually do have the power to take intentional action and not just respond to the things, right? Not just react to the things that happen to us or the things that are served to us in in ads. Yeah,
1: Matthew Crawford, we've had him on the podcast. He's the guy that wrote Shop Classes, Soulcraft. Craft. He he made a distinction between agency and autonomy. And he says a Mm. lot of in modern life, we confuse autonomy for agency. But he says like autonomy is just basically the freedom to choose. But oftentimes you can have autonomy, but your choices are limited, right? It's like when you have a kid and you're like, well, do you want to wear this thing or this thing? Well, you're helping your kid be autonomous, but they don't really have agency because they didn't get to construct the choices. And a lot of modern life is we feel autonomous because we need to make all these choices between what we watch on Netflix and uh, the newsletters we subscribe to and yada, yada but often it it, it kind of strips us of our agency
0: because we're just given these choices, like a parent gives choices of what color cup you're gonna use. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, it's the difference between freedom from and freedom for. Freedom for means that you can construct the choices, right? Most people just like to order off the menu. Literally, like the, the options that are served to them. But we can order off menu, right? I mean, maybe the options are more than, you know, what shows up on Google Eats. Maybe there's some amazing restaurants. And we just take those things for granted. So, um, you know, maybe as, as, as an anti mimetic exercise, try ordering off the menu the next time you go out to eat and just see what happens. Because it's, it's literally like, a, I know it sounds silly, but it's like a small example of exercising some creative control and agency. And, you know, these kind of things spill over into other aspects of life.
1: When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30 day money back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was how can I take care of my family? When I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's so one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance. One of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meatfabric.com manliness. That's meetfabric.com manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Something else you've been writing about lately that I've enjoyed thinking about is how we think about time and organize our lives can be driven by mimetic
0: desires. So what does the rhythm of life look like when it's driven by mimesis? Well, I I think of worldly time, the time in the world as a metronome, you know, the device that's used to keep track of time on a piano. And it's just ticking really, really fast. I mean, it seems to be ticking faster and faster. And, you know, we can either accept that or we can choose to model our life on different forms of time. You know, the mimesis on social media, on Twitter, is just moving at a breakneck speed. And no wonder people are exhausted and depressed. You know, the desires are being pulled in a billion different directions on social media, and time moves very fast. I mean, almost everybody I talk to, maybe some of it's due to the pandemic, everybody feels like time is speeding up. I know I have over the last few years. And we just take these things for granted. Oh, there's an election site. There's an election coming up. I have to participate in the news cycle for that election if I'm a good citizen. Well, that's bullshit. No, you don't. You you can choose how you want to engage in the consumption of that. This kind of comes back to the question of agency. Same thing with emails. You know, I get 500 plus a day. And I can be on that time of when those things flow into my inbox, but I'm not sort of moving to a system where I don't even see most of the emails that I get. And I talk to my assistant once a week and we go over all of them, we go over what's important and we organize them. So making those intentional choices about, about pulling back. And, you know, I, one of the things in my life that's been, you know, tremendous good for me. It's not for everybody, Um, but I'm Catholic, and one I learned later in life about this ancient tradition in the church called the Liturgy of the Hours, where typically monks in the monastic tradition, they would pray what's called basically morning prayer, afternoon prayer. Evening prayer and night prayer. And there's a couple more. Hardcore monks actually wake up in the middle of the night, like at 3 a.m., and they have another one. But, you know, this is available to anybody, right? And I bought myself this beautiful breviary where it's got psalms and prayers in it. And I don't do it every day, I don't do it four times a day, but there's a rhythm of life to that, right? Regardless. Same thing with feast days. And these things do not map on to, you know, the holidays that we have in the U.S. It's almost like operating outside of time a little bit, right? So for me, me, you know, that's been one way of me living my, my faith and my particular tradition that I, you know, I found that as a tremendous tool. I think other people can find their own way. Nature operates at a different rhythm than technology does. And simple things like I'm here at the the lake house for the summer and time moves completely different for me here than it does when I'm in D.C. where I live for part of the year. And when I lived in Italy for three years, my concept of time totally changed. I mean, I, I learned what it was like to have a two and a half hour lunch. and I would have told you that was crazy before I lived there. We can immerse ourselves in different rhythms of time and not just accept the ones that are presented to us. I
1: guess, maybe observing of Sabbath, even if you're not religious, you could observe a Sabbath, a day where you just, you're not online, you just take it off and it's completely useless. This is again, doing a Sabbath is the most useless thing in the world because you're not getting any productive work done. But Mm -hmm. as Aristotle and C.S. Lewis said, the useless things are the most valuable things. Absolutely. Yeah. And then also, I think you can think on the bigger picture scale of, you know, you talked about the liturgical hours of prayer that you do, that goes throughout the year, like there's, you know, different feast days and fast days, and Mm -hmm. maybe you find a a schedule there that you can kind of sync your life up to that kind of gives a a rhythm to your life that's outside of the forensic social media, hyper-capitalist individualistic uh, mimetic
0: time cycle. Yeah. I mean, intermittent fasting is a great example of that. I mean, it's something that, that, you know, I've just started relatively recently and it's not according to any kind of external model, right? There's a rhythm to that. So all of these things kind of help me build something that, that makes me feel like I have more intentionality about how I'm spending my time. And even I mean, intermittent fasting, even just, I don't even have to, who said I have to eat on this specific schedule or that I need to work nine to five Monday through Friday? Where did that come from? And we've just internalized some of these ideas so deeply about this kind of worldly time. When I started my first company, it took me like years To break out of that mentality and realize that, hey, if I want to go golfing at 1 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon or go to the grocery store or something like that, I can do that. And I can actually do it without feeling guilty about it. But it was was shocking to me how deeply ingrained those concepts of time actually were. So something
1: else you've written about that piqued my interest in your newsletter is you mentioned that Rene Girard, the guy who came up with this whole idea of mimetic desire in theory, he once used the phrase political atheist in passing. And he didn't really explain too much what it meant. So you've been grappling like, what did he mean by this? What is a political atheist? You've never, I've never heard those two words together. So based on your sort of thinking about this and writing about it and also talking about it with other people, what's your hunch
0: about what you're meant by this political atheism? He coined that term in his very first book, which is called Deceit, Desire, and the Novel. And he said that the great French writer Stendhal seems to be a political atheist. And Stendhal was his famous book is called The Red and the Black. It took place during the French Restoration, after the French Revolution, where there was this big battle playing out kind of between monarchy and liberalism is kind of an undercurrent through the whole book. And it's a funny book. You know, it's the protagonist is this young guy named Julian, kind of from peasant stock, but he wants to rise up the ranks and he's trying to figure out the fastest way to do that and in the book you know stendhal kind of shows that this opposition between these two political parties is really flimsy <laughs> and you know characters kind of switch between the two of them all the time and he helps the reader see like different dynamics that are operating under the surface where the temptation is to kind of believe in all the promises that any character makes when they just flip parties like the the next month, you know? So he said Stendhal sees something deeper under the surface he's trying to call our attention to. He called Shakespeare a political atheist, Alexis de Tocqueville, and he said perhaps in in private conversation, Gerard said maybe Christ was also a political atheist. Super provocative statement, and I think what he means by that He would, Girard would say that, you know, Christ specifically desacralized worldly politics, desacralized it. In the Roman Empire, the emperor started to become associated with the son of God and all these things. And the veil was torn back. And we started to see that, you know, we can't invest sacred authority in any kind of worldly leader. And by political atheist, I think Gerard meant that I reject the call and the demand for me to believe in any one political leader that tries to set themselves up as a savior, any even any one political party that tries to set itself up as a savior and says that they can solve all of our problems. And, you know, he would probably say, like, I reject that that demand to believe or to idolize even a whole political system and to kind of step back and have some spiritual distance from that to not be caught up in the riptides that are so easy to be caught up in in modern day politics so i I would say that it's a it's kind of a desacralization of worldly politics and in my opinion american politics have become incredibly sacralized there's almost a religious aspect to them. You know, maybe it's because there's been a decline in religion and people kind of are putting their faith in politics more. I don't know. I've got all kinds of ideas about what might be happening there. But the political atheist intrigues me so much because I, I think if Gerard were alive today, he passed away in 2015, he'd probably say, you know, it's more important to be a political atheist than ever before. And that doesn't mean disengaging with the world, burying our head in the sand and acting like there's no problems. We're all political animals. I am too. But you know, perhaps being a political atheist, we can reject this total immersion in the political promises that you know, Stendhal in that book sort of exposed to be relatively empty. We might even say often driven by manipulating the thin desires of people. So perhaps you know, one way of being a political atheist is we rediscover some thick desires that we have some of the political machinations that are happening just become a little less, I, I mean, serious, I guess would be one way to say it. Or we can at least have some perspective and some critical distance from them. I, this idea
1: that Americans really secularize politics. I, and Tocqueville noticed that even in the 1800s. Like well, he was just amazed about how much, you know, Americans he talked to, they're like, they, all they do, they talk politics and they talk about, oh, I'm going to this meeting and I'm going to go to do this. I'm going to join this campaign. Something about America, like our founding kind of set in place this idea that where politics becomes infused with everything like our, our, you know, it's always been kind of connected with religion in a way. But also you see it today confused with even what we consume, like the media we consume, the clothes we wear, the brands we decided politics is there. And so being a political atheist is trying to separate those or maybe see behind what's going on there.
0: Yeah. One friend of mine said there's a bull market in politics, you know, and it's literally true in the sense that I think if you look at the last uh, 10 to 20 years, like the amount of money that's been poured into politics and campaigns is like there's been exponential growth in it. So it's like, what's going on there? Is that bubble going to burst? Um, so the, the people that are political theists, right, that maybe have invested too much of themselves and their lives into politics or into one particular candidate or something like that may be in for a rude awakening or some some kind of real disillusionment, you know, when when that bubble bursts kind of like the stock market.
1: We had a, a podcast guest on the show last year, Robert Talese. He's a professor of political philosophy, and he wrote a book called Overdoing Democracy. And he made this case that by infusing politics in everything we do, the sports we watch, et cetera. Uh, we actually hurt democracy in the process it makes democracy not possible because it just mucks everything up so one case you can make becoming a political atheist can also allow
0: you to allow politics to thrive in a more productive way exactly and i would agree with that i mean sports serve a really important function in our society in my opinion a ritual function a cathartic function joy play both professional and amateur, and, you know, once politics takes over absolutely everything, those things can no longer serve their function. In fact, they can become miserable, right? They can make It's just, it's, it's too much. Uh, we can only handle so much, and, you know, politics is part of life. We are political animals, but it's not all of life, and when it starts to take over all of life, it seems to me that uh, some political atheism is a very healthy thing. What do you say to the people
1: sometimes when you tell people, you know, I just, I'm trying to, like... I want to be a political lady, you say it in some sort of way, well, I'm not trying to be political about this, but someone will say, well, you know what, you're actually taking a political stance by not being political. And it's privileged to do that, to
0: say that you're above it all. What's your response to that sort of talk? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, you know, it doesn't mean that I, that I, that I'm not going to vote. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to engage, but it means that, you know, I'm going to vote and then I'm going to go home and give my wife and my daughter a hug and then I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to get up and I'm going to do my job with excellence the next day, right? It's eyes up, rise up, and we can't get sucked into the centripetal force that politics wants to pull us into so that it consumes our whole life. So it would just be wrong to interpret political atheism as total disengagement. You know, the word atheism is in there for a reason. It's a rejection of a certain kind of belief in politics as trying to be something more than it can be, that maybe only God can fill that role. So it's a rejection of a belief. And I think we live in a world right now where people are trying to, you know, make really stark dividing lines, kind of you're either for us or you're against us, put people into camps. And that's really dangerous. And, you know, there's kind of a Manichaean undercurrent to all of this, right? The world is divided up into good and evil. People are, parties are, uh, like, I reject that, So that's part of being a political atheist is rejecting some of these premises that we just take for granted. And we can very easily get sucked into them and saying, no, 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 I can can be engaged, but I'm not going to be engaged in that way, in that way that you are demanding, um, which would make me sort of lose myself.
1: So we got a presidential election coming up here in a year. And as you talked about, that's one of those mimetic time cycles we can get sucked in, right, where just everything – that's going on on the internet, in the news, in the newspaper. It all d- is driven by this presidential cycle. So any advice on being a political
0: atheist during a time when it seems like so much of society is aflame with political passion? I, I mean, I know what, I, what I'll do. I'll regulate my consumption of media very, very carefully. I will not get caught up and guilted into, you know, you have to watch every debate. I, I know what I need to know to make an informed vote, right? And that doesn't mean I need to consume the amount of information in the 24-hour news cycle that they want me to believe that I do. I will put it in perspective. People have been saying that every single election for the last 150 years is apocalyptic. I mean, I'm not kidding. If you go go back and read the New York Times in 1900 and it will say that, you know, if this person gets elected it's the end of the world, right? This is the most important election in our lifetime. You can do like an engram tracking of Google on that that's been used for well over 100 years. You know, in print. So you know, which one is it? Which one? so, so I, you know, and I, and I make an intentional effort. I mean, one thing that I do that I, I think helps me mentally helps with my mental and spiritual health is I'm intentional about cultivating relationships with just a diverse array of people. Right? I don't want to live in a place or interact with people that that agree with me. And I will likely, and I've done this before, is you know try to host a dinner with nine people, for instance, and to be three Republicans, three Democrats, and three independents. And I have seen in my life that it's what I see in my home when I do things like that is completely different than what you would believe would happen, right? If you, if you believe and you trust in the news, like not possible to have a wonderful, wonderful evening in conversation with that mix of people. Well, it is, and I've seen it. And I bet I could think of three or four groups of nine people that I could do that with. Maybe I'm lucky, but I, I've, really made an intentional effort to do that kind of thing. And because I've seen that and experienced those things, it really makes some of the things that we'll hear during this coming presidential election seem a little bit silly. And I can sort of see them for, I, I see it for the untruth that it is when we're sort of Told that we need to invest things or that people are a certain way or that these people are not reasonable. It simply does not do justice to the complexity of the human person and their ability to engage when they're actually spoken to and loved and treated like a person whose opinions actually matter.
1: I like that. So, host a political atheist, anti mimetic dinner, this presidential election cycle.
0: There you go. Let, let me know how it goes. All right. We'll see
1: how that goes. and Maybe other people <laughs> yeah. will let us know how it goes. Well, Luke, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to
0: learn more about your work? Thanks, Brett. I really enjoyed it. LukeBurgess.com is my website. I think all my stuff is there. And I write a substack, usually weekly, called Anti anti-mimetic You can find that I'm substack. And it's also at read.lukeburgess.com.
1: Fantastic. Well, Luke Burgess, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. It's all my pleasure. My guest today was Luke Burgess. He's the author of the book Wanting. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, lukeburgess.com. Also check out his Substack Antimimetic, at read.lukeburgess.com. Also check out our show notes at awmis slash antimimetic, where you find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you to not listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.